Are you tired of boring lectures and textbooks on human factors and UX? Well, grab your headphones and get ready for a wild ride with the Human Factors Minute podcast. Each minute is like a mini crash course packed with valuable insights and information on various organizations, conferences, usability methods, theories, models, certifications, tools, and much more. We'll take you on a journey through the fascinating world of human factors, from the ancient history to the latest trends and developments. Listen in as we explore the field and discover new ways to enhance the user experience. From the think aloud protocol to the critical incident technique, focus groups, iterative design, we'll make sure that you're the smartest person in the room. Tune in on the 10th, the 20th, and the last day of every month for a new and interesting tidbit related to human factors. Don't miss out on the Human Factors Minute podcast, your ultimate source for all things human factors. Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Oh, it's springtime for Human Factors Cast in Worldwide. Uh, it's episode 277. We're recording this live on March 23rd, 2023. Like I said, this is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Hello, good to see you. Well, welcome to our show tonight, everybody. Uh, we got some exciting topics to discuss, including the story tonight, which is on user stories and what they're good for, eventually how to improve upon them. We'll also be uh, answering some questions from our community on topics like struggling to find UX research opportunities for beginners, quitting jobs, and the intersection of UX research and AI. So sit back, relax, let's get started. But before we do... Uh, <laughs> We have an exciting <laughs> announcement coming next week, and I'm really excited about it. Like, I'm so excited about it. This has been, like, I'm not exaggerating when I say years in the making, but, like, recently just picked up traction, uh, and it is very cool. It may or may not be another podcast announcement. It may or may not be with personalities you're familiar with. You may or may not want to tune in to the, uh, the Human Factors and Ergonomic Society International Symposium on Human Factors and Ergonomics and Healthcare next week uh that we we might have an announcement for you there so that's a little tease i guess i can't get more specific than that right now but 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 barry can barry can get more specific with what happened at 1202 this week so yeah so in 1202 we had our episode with jenny ratcliffe go right go live so jenny Rat, uh, ratcliffe the people hacker the um ethical uh, burglar um, give us basically her insights into into social engineering and uh, pen testing or penetrate, penetration testing. And really the the big thing that she's doing is normally when we talk about these sort of things, we believe that we're looking at sort of cyber and, and, and hacking and things like that. Whereas what she's doing is, as she describes it, hacking the people, not hacking the technology um, and working out how to um, penetrate security systems. So she get, she was really uh, generous with her time and um, her thoughts. So that is now up there and uh, well worth listening. You, you may know Jenny as the other Human Factors podcast. If you if you look up Human Factors podcast, you get Human Factors security. So it's, mm -hmm. she's right there. Barry, I know you've been looking forward to this one for a long time. So I'm glad you finally got yes, to do it. it. Yes, it's been um, it, the longest bit of it was actually just plucking up the courage to message her and said, please come and talk on my podcast. You inspired me to do my podcast. Can you come and talk on my podcast? And she was very kind about it. 
Well, I'm glad she was kind about it. Uh, looking forward to listening to that. I still haven't listened to that one. Sorry. Not disappointing. I know. I know. But hopefully the episode isn't. Anyway, we, we got a story that we need to get to. So let's get to it. This is the part of the show all about human factors news. Barry, what is the story this week? So the story this week is, as a user, I don't want to. So user stories that were invented in around 1997, and they've become a ubiquitous tool for software teams attempting to focus on the value of their products. However, in many cases, task-oriented user stories have replaced the original formats, masking the lack of benefits by falsely justifying product features. So an example of this is, as a user, I want to reach a goal so that I can obtain a benefit. That is the traditional user story. But it's now morphed to, as a user, I want to do a task so I can use the tool. So task-oriented user stories do not differentiate between costs and benefit and don't show why users are willing to pay for these benefits. Fortunately, this can easily be remedied by inverting the stories. By recognizing that task is a cost and searching for a way for us to remove that cost, we can move the focus back to the benefit for the users so we can optimize the product experience. Inverting the user story highlights that the feature, is, feature ID is a hypothesis, invoking the question of whether users actually want to optimize their experience instead of assuming that they do. By identifying pay points through existing costs, software teams can innovate and differentiate their products from competitors more successfully. The original user story format is beneficial because it outlines the benefits that users may be willing to pay for. Whilst task-oriented user stories reduce the focus on these benefits by replacing them with tasks and features that users will not necessarily find valuable. So, Nick, are you a forward-thinking kind of guy, or do you need to have your uh, in, do you need to invert your um, uh, user story to get meaning out of life? Look, so in some ways, this I talk about unprofessional. I have my phone ringing off over here. Uh, <laughs> this makes sense in some ways. Um, I love this from a UX perspective. Putting the human's goals first is always a good thing. And that's how we treat human factors. And and this is why it's so critical that we play a part in the requirements process. I think if you look at the goals of, of humans and put those first, goals can be ambiguous, which means there's sort of this need to deconstruct goals into hierarchies of goals and what goals that you're trying to achieve to make that overall goal happen. I love that process. Um, but the the article doesn't necessarily address the downsides of this um, or the risks associated with using these inverted user stories. And I think just user stories in general, we, we talked about this a little bit in the pre-show about associating cost of implementing the technology, but don't necessarily always consider the cost, the negative cost of implementing that technology. When you when you implement something, does it then become more cumbersome to use for some types of users? Uh, or does this have adverse interaction effects for some reason or another? Um, the bad news with all this is that changing culture is hard, especially in software development. Uh, so unless it's adopted by certification courses, agile communities, it's not gonna happen. Um, that's how I feel about this in a nutshell, Barry, you got a very simple reaction, but I feel like it's going to be 
a rant. So what what do you think of this? Oh, my. so this is just really excuse making for adapting bad, bad methodology. So the methodology when it was first instigated was for me was right. It was about turning around and saying, right, what is it I'm trying to achieve? What is it that that my user, what is the benefit that they want to get? Okay. So then what's happened, and this is where we sort of assume that uh, the UX is agile and UX is scrum because it's not. They're just, a, they're just things that really work well with each other. Um, the, the, you, uh, the agile and scrum teams, because they're actually probably more dominated by software and systems, um, type of folks, they've got, I see what you're trying to do there, and uh, doing that whole user wanting to reach a goal and obtain a benefit. So the benefit is being able to use the tool. Clearly it is, isn't it? And to reach the goal, um, that's just a that's just a task because reaching the goal is a task and therefore the user wants to do a task. So you can sort of see how that has happened. But what it's meant is that we've, that the, the this methodology has then been subsumed into a um, an engineering paradigm rather than a, uh, a human factors paradigm so what we really should be doing is now pushing back really hard and say get your hands off our methodology or if you're going to do it use it properly um because what we've done here now is turn around and said okay we see what you're doing there we've seen that you've done the whole task thing and the tool thing so if we invert that so we have to do yet another process to get it back to pretty much to what we had in the or what we wanted in the first place sort of but even then it's not quite right and that means we're still gonna have to do a lot more work to work out what it is that the user wants to achieve and what the overall benefit they want to get so i get why we're here i get tools evolve methodologies evolve that's fine um but here we are now trying to develop more methodology in order to fix methodology that's gone wrong and really we should be stronger within our field to show a bit of leadership and say hands off that's me done. And I'm just going to leave now. If I had a mic, I'd drop it. I do have a mic. I can't drop it because it's on a boom arm. Uh, yeah, man. Okay. Yeah. So this is, this <laughs> Sorry, is man. a, like, I feel, I feel better now. Okay, good. I'm glad you feel better. I'm glad you got that out of your system. This is a UXE topic. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a good meaty topic, actually, because what is really neat about it is it does show because things do evolve, you know, life evolves, methodologies evolve. And if this is sort of put more of a positive spin on this now, if things have evolved, so people are thinking about the user first, even if it's in the wrong way, there is advantage in being able to say, well, at least you're sort of halfway there. And this is maybe us meeting them halfway. So that, that's me slightly less ranty about it, but. Um, well, yeah. So I think let's just take a step back for anyone unfamiliar with the concept of what a user story is. They're, common in in uh, software development. You see this in Scrum and Agile all the time. And the entire purpose of these things is to keep development teams moving and focused on um, basically providing additional features and functionality, that capability to customers. Um, when you look at user stories, they've become ubiquitous in software development. Like this, this is everywhere you go in software development, you see user stories. Um, you're going to be hard pressed to not find a place that doesn't follow user stories in some way, shape or form. The, uh, the original user story format looks at sort of the benefits that a user might be willing to pay for when it comes to implementing this technology. And that's kind of what we're talking about um, when it comes to, putting the user first and with respect to this article is it something that they're they're wanting because they're willing to pay for it or is it something that they're wanting because they need it 
and its capability that they want. So we're looking fundamentally at two different types of user stories here in this article, at least. There's the task-oriented user stories, um, and those focus on the tasks that a user must do to get to their goals, which can sometimes lead to bad product decisions. And here's an example of how. So if you have a goal that is an outcome of a task, it's not directly, you're not getting directly at the goal. You're saying, hopefully that goal will be accomplished by that task. You're not saying, this is the goal that we're trying to solve coming back you know, to the task. That's the, that's the inversion, is if you put the goal, if you put that bigger thought about how this value might be, um, you know, how users might be attracted to this value proposition, it's going to ultimately focus on that benefit to users and and what their goals are. And so I think that is what we're looking at here. That's an overview. Did I miss anything? No, I don't think so. I think it's the it is just that whole that whole focus on rather than saying so we're focusing on the tool or the 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 function rather than the outcome. Um, and then we, because we, we have to flip this around. Um, so there's, yeah, there's, it so it, it works. I mean, the, you can't argue with it. The, the article, when you read it, and I, I recommend that people go and read the entire article, not just, not just the bit I, um, I read out, but it's a, it, it's a well-constructed argument. It, it's where, um, it highlights why you know you make task-oriented um, user stories. They can lead to bad product decisions, and it makes sense. You know, it's the um, you know the example I think is in there around the user wants to um, um, log on via the logon screen um, in order to be able to use the tool. Um, and you say, well, I don't well, want to have to log on. Nobody ever wants. Nobody wants to log on. No, you just want to go and be able to use the tool. Uh, and even when we talked about this at the din table pre-show i sort of put out this this example and um my wife immediately was going i don't want to use the logon screen and it's like one you know wanted to use a secure password nobody wants to use a secure password because most people forget them um but it's a necessary evil in order to do it therefore we sort of get ourselves into this thing of um right we we we, we have a, a logon screen so if we invert that then it's saying right in order to use the tool i have to have a logon screen the user ha- the, so the user needs to in- interact with with this logon screen um so then you sort of say well okay there's clearly a benefit of doing that because without it they can't get into the tool um but equally you could say in order to you know to use a certain function you need to have a another screen in there or to, to use a capability you need to have another screen in there that might be really intrusive you say well actually that's not that that amount of effort isn't worth um doing it for for that outcome Right. Excellent. I mean, you can you can say like a a user would want to be secure when they're um when they're operating a piece of software, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they they don't want I don't want anybody to access my account without me knowing. <laughs> Therefore, we need security policies in place. Um, the I think for me the thing that is interesting about this application of user stories when you say things like as a user i want to especially when it comes to things like a log on screen 
Um, mm-hmm. And that's a very simplistic example, but those types of examples are everywhere throughout a software, no matter what thing you're working on. And what happens from a cultural standpoint, internal to your organization, is that you start to get others outside of the role of UX, product managers, developers, um, you know, uh, various other roles that recite those as if that is based on user research. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. Those are user stories written. And I think this is why I was saying that this is important that we get involved at the requirements process, because we need to define those requirements in a way that is going to result in user stories that are actually equivalent to what users want. Yeah. And it's tricky because when you when you write them based on what they want, then how do you address those situations where it's like, yeah, we need we need a secure password. Um, well, that becomes difficult. So that's the whole premise of this article is that we we rephrase how we talk about these things. And therefore, we're thinking about the problem in a different way where it's down to user needs instead of system requirements. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's effectively taking something that then exists and actually getting value out of it from a from a, a user centered perspective. Um, I mean, it is it, it's 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 an interesting perspective. Right? Do you think it applies to you know we can use this inversion on every situation, every product? Because I'm not necessarily convinced that we can. Um, no. So it's clearly got to be there's got to be a bit of skill there, hasn't there? There's got to be a bit of judgment with the UX professional to sort of say, well, actually, I can see we can get value out of this by inverting it, but sometimes it might just not be possible or beneficial to do so. No, it's it's not a one-size-fits-all application. I'll give you a great example of this, okay? So you have a video game developer with the user goal of, I want to have a good time when I play this game. That is the ultimate goal of playing a yep. game. You want to play a game to have fun and to relax, you know? And so this is where I'm talking about goal hierarchies. You deconstruct that and say, well, my goal is to encounter challenges and overcome those challenges. Well, how do you design for that? How, you know, you bring it down even more. Well, I want to experience a little bit of friction, but how much friction? Mm-hmm. And so this is where it becomes nebulous. I mean, it's nebulous all the way down, but when you start deconstructing those goals and get to that level of, you, there's just not going to be a level that is a, a one size fits all for, here's the friction that we're introducing. It's at this level because it's going to largely depend on other settings, accessibility. It's going to depend on, um, you know, difficulty within the game that you have set, you know? So there's other parameters that impact that. And that is largely incumbent upon the user to opt in to those selections for them to have the most amount of fun. Some people who have children and don't have the time to invest in video games want to play on easy and they should not be shamed for that. And they just want to experience the story, right? I play easy. Yeah. (laughs) I've started playing easy because I don't want to waste my time fighting the same things over and over and over again. And um, unless there's like a, unless there's some external motivation and now we can actually talk about it, right? So do I want to be motivated 
is it going to establish more fun for me? I don't know. And user stories in this context, I know user stories are used in video game software development, but is it going to work? I don't know. And and some of this, I think, is influenced by by fashion, if I'm honest. So we know that user stories is, you know, we've already said that UX and Scrum and Agile, they're all very fashionable at the moment. Mm-hmm. And everybody, I'm now meeting more and more people who've read a book or they've read a blog post or they've read a, they watched a quick youtube guide on on scrum 101 or ux 101 and and things like this and so automatically because the beauty the beauty of a good user story is it's simple it looks simple and you think oh anybody could but most user stories are so well crafted that they take time and they take effort and they take multiple iterations to get right and to be you know, to be that simple and to be that good um and I've seen so many versions of this now where people said, oh, well, I've, I've done a lot of user stories. Look at my user stories. And, and they the pull out a big list. And you sit there going, so what what methodology have you used to to get there and, and do it? And they're like, well, I, I got, I, I got, I wrote, I wrote a bunch of user stories down there for, and I was like, well, Okay, so how do you know they're how do you know they're complete? How do you know they're exhaustive? How do you know how do you know you've you've got the range? How do you know you and all that? And you just they just can't answer it, um, which is where you know I mean I mean so and this is maybe to, to give some credit where credit's due, this is maybe this inverted view is a way of recovering bad user stories. Um, you know that's that's possibly where the benefit is is for us to almost re re grasp the initiative. Um, yeah. saying right, okay, you, you've done this work. That that. Thank you very much for that. We'll take that away. And instead of ripping it up like I would and stamp on it and maybe spit on it a bit, um, is to then take that and and invert it to then get back to a um a decent value based system. Um. So I've um, I I've asked ChatGPT to come up with some examples, and you can right away see the variation in those levels of detail and which ones are i don't know beautiful like you were like you were describing so let me let me just start with a high level one okay mm-hmm. overall i want a travel booking website that is intuitive user friendly and efficient so that i can easily plan and book my travel without any hassle or stress that is high level that's not specific okay but it is getting at a user goal, uh, almost, right? <laughs> and then you have these like weirdly specific, not weirdly, these, these, these are common for what you'd find in software development. Um, as a user, I'd like to be able to enter my travel dates and destination into a search field on a travel booking website and then see a list of available flights with prices and schedules. I would like to be able to filter and sort the results by price, departure time, and airline so that I can quickly find the best option for my needs. You see what I'm talking about there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, it's, I mean, even the, this where chat GPT is potentially falling over as well, because you go back to that first one, which was relatively high level. And and actually, and it may just be me, I'd be going that one step back from that because I don't, just because I'm going on holiday, I don't necessarily want to use a website to do it. I wanted, I want to be able to book a holiday. Um, now it happens to be that then your next level down is okay. Well, I, I've got websites, or I could do it by phone. But who does that by phone anymore? Who actually goes and visits a real travel agent? So we are making an assumption there to make to make it run forward. Um, 
or it could be there is a context there that I'm I'm a website designer. But um, but yeah, it's it is, and this this is why it is as I think it's as much of a an art as it is a science um, to be able to craft some of this stuff because I think um, having spent most of my time in sort of like in defense and safety critical type stuff, we tend we tend to not steer clear of use of user stories because I, I find them a very valuable tool, but you still then go and then drill down into, okay, I've got these stories. How do they make requirements? Which is not what you would do, which is not really what they're made for. They're made for to be that whole bit where you don't actually need requirements after that. The, the, the team then comes together and fulfills um, the user goal. Um, but I do, you know, even, using this sort of approach in requirements, definition requirement, uh, re requirements articulation, they still are not something that are easy to do. It does take a certain level of skill and, and panache to be able to pull off um, um, some good requirements. Yeah. I mean, a good user story is focused on the user and that's good. Like that, this is a net good thing that we are thinking mm. about the user in software development. Like that is a net good thing, Right. Uh, it focuses on the user and their needs, needs, not goals. Um, it's also specific. So it talks about a specific thing that they're working on. These are hallmarks of good user stories. You also have a measurable component to it, making sure that you know when this condition is met, right? And so this could take the form of, as a user, I want to X so that I can Y I will know this is complete when Z and you have completion criteria, right? Um, having them be concise is also good. And then also independent from each other to where you're not going to get overlap between them. They're specific enough to not have like this overlap between them. And I think that is, is, uh, is good. And it shouldn't be dependent on other stories to work. That's so, just to, because we put new stories basically on trial here to a certain extent. Okay, yeah, uh, let's do it. With, with both ways that we we're looking at it, um, I guess at the moment we I go back to what I said earlier about them being fashionable and and all that sort of stuff. Um, do we think that actually user stories are the be all and end all? What have they got weaknesses? Because we we've used the log on screen. You've, you you talked about security earlier. Nobody is going to sit there and say, oh, well, I, I want, um, you know, I, I, I want a password protected system. Well, actually, because you don't, because that's, that's never going to be a user story because you never want it. But what, what happens if there's, um, if we prior, is there such a thing as prioritizing user preference over things like, you know, the, your ethical considerations like privacy, security, social responsibility? Um, are, we, are, are they too focused, too too short-termist discuss uh, discuss, discuss. <laughs> uh, i i don't think they're the end-all be-all um do i think that this inverted user story is the end-all be-all no i think ultimately ultimately having ux in charge and making all the shots is the end-all be-all when it comes to uh when when some when we come to some of this um but but Ultimately, what we're looking at here is they're useful for capturing those user needs and requirements, but there's a lot of drawbacks to them, which make them not good for the end-all be-all state. 
right? In a lot of cases, these things lack context. So they can provide some high level detail, some high level view of what's going on. They don't provide those details, um, especially around what a user wants to accomplish. So they, they might not provide that full context that you might get from things like user research. Um, and it really does, like I was highlighting earlier, create that disconnect from what a user truly does want and what everybody on the team thinks they want because they're writing it in that format. Um, and, and so that can impact user experience in a lot of ways, right? You also have um, sort of the, the scope of some of these. They're typically, like I mentioned, very focused on, on something, right? Like that, that example that I gave to you, uh, which was, I want to enter my travel dates into destination search field on a travel booking website, see a list of available flights, right? That is very specific. Mm-hmm. And that specificity limits basically how 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 you approach a problem um just because you're writing it in that way right you also have you also have this underlying bias towards the requirements because you're writing them towards the requirements you're not writing them from the perspective of the user you're writing them in that phrase as a user i want to but they are biased they are towards those requirements and not necessarily biased towards the user, which is not right. <laughs> There's other issues, but those that's kind of where I, <laughs> the, the, I mean, the, the biggest fundamental, like, I guess, drawback is that the users aren't actually writing this. The users aren't included in this process. <laughs> and it's just leading to these assumptions from the development team and other, other pieces of the product team that, ultimately is can be bad or detrimental to uh to, to end users i don't know barry yeah. what do you think do you think this is the end all be all <laughs> no it's it, it's it's not because there's i'm not i guess it's coming from the experiences that i've had there are some things that need to exist within a, a system or whatever it is you're developing just because it, you you've basically got a, a wider you've got wider pressures doing different things. So from a defense perspective, you're always going to have that security um, imperative in what we're doing that might not, the the having to have a cert, certain uh, layers of security are always going to get in the way and hinder the user. And the user never wants to be hindered in what they're doing. So sometimes there's almost like the the third party in the room that, or, or a third user um, that, is, that is saying, well, actually, I, I'm, I've got some overarching stuff to deal with. Um, but that's just that's the way you adapt what you're doing. Um, but I think we my problem with so it's not a problem with user stories. That user stories are hugely valuable for being able to articulate what it is that you that, that you're trying to do. Um, my problem with user stories is then they tend to be non-exhaustive. Um, how do we know um, that that we've captured all of the user stories that um, that fulfill it? You could argue that this is why they work with Scrum um, to sort of methodologies, agile methodologies, is because you're never looking for a complete solution. You're you're generally looking for an MVP, a minimal viable product, and then you will iterate off that. And, and that's why it, it works for them because you turn around and say, right, what is my, what are the key things I'm trying to achieve? Right, I'm going to take this, 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 this user stories one to five. 
um, we've identified as being my best ones. We'll get the product to do that. Great. Yes, that's gone out. That's that's been reviewed. Right. We're now going to add in six, seven, and eight. Uh, we're not going to do nine because they're not interested. We're going to go and do ten. Um, that doesn't work for every type of system. If you're looking, if you're if you have a system that needs to be 100% system, um, it needs to work from the off. It can't afford not to have some of these functions in. That's where user stories don't sometimes don't lend themselves very well because you're not evolving the product. You're not developing the product. You have to get it right first time. Well, in theory, you have to get it right first time. Um, I don't think I've ever met one that's actually got it right first time. But um, but that but that's a theory. Yeah, um, no, I, I think that's right. Uh, I honestly, I don't know how much else I have to say about this, Barry. I, like, th- just the way that we capture information and user needs and goals is broken, and there's better ways to do it. Depending on it depends on um a lot of different factors, and humans are not one of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me. It's- for us as UXHF professionals, go to, try and go back to doing it right from the beginning. Um, you know, get it right first time. You know, look at the at the user benefits rather than do that. But I sort of I I've got some sympathy having ranted against it about this. It this could feel like it's oh don't it's not ideal, but I'm trying to rescue the situation. It's a tool inverting these task oriented tools. I could be saving the situation, but but you're not because it goes back to what you've just said, that what you're doing is you're inverting something that hasn't come from the user. It's come from the engineering team who want to develop a certain type of system. Um, so it's got that bias and it, the user hasn't been anywhere near it. Therefore, you're yes, it feels like you're trying to save something and it feels like you might have saved it, but you haven't really. Um, you sort of, you've you've given everybody a bit of a, a, um, a get out clause and it's not quite right. I don't think it's what personally for, for me some of the final thoughts I have on this is the correct way to word user stories as they exist today as a product owner I want the user to <laughs> yeah. right so like ultimately that's what's going on is is you have these um these development teams and and product owners who are guiding the product and that's what their role is but that is how they should be written to convey the truth because then uh but but no one wants to say that they are the ones that are uh, the anyway what i'm trying to get at here is that's how you fix it to be more accurate to get it to be more useful is a different conversation and i see the inversion as as one potential stepping stone to get to that ultimate point of nirvana where the user is like front and center always coming first never driven by uh external factors going on right it's all about the user and and not money and but that's not going to happen anytime soon barry any other final thoughts on this one do you know how i solve all of this by making sure that your um, scrum lead, um, the, the lead is a human factors professional. And generally, if that's so, if your scrum master is an HF person, um, they will generally make this work properly. Um, I just find that HF people make the best, best scrum masters. I, I, I'm biased in that, but I would say that's right. Uh, so. <laughs> 
All right. Well, thank you to our friends over at the UX Collective. And thank you to our patrons and everyone else for voting on our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post links to the original articles on our weekly roundups and our blog. You can also join us in Discord for more discussion on these stories and much more. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you, as always, to all of our patrons. We especially want to thank our Human Factors cast, All Access patron, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you, keep the lights on. I am so excited for this part of the show because I had told Barry last week that he was going to read the dumb ad, but we're going to we're going to tag team it. So I've tagged in here, Barry, your parts. Okay, you ready? (laughs) I'm I'm so ready for this. Okay. Hey there, podcast listeners. Do you ever feel like you're missing out on exclusive content and behind-the-scenes action? Well, fear not, because our Patreon has got you covered. For just $1 a month, you can become a Human Factors practitioner and receive personalized thank you messages, access to our patron-only Discord channel, and the full audio versions of our weekly podcast, Human Factors Cast, complete with pre-shows and post-shows. But wait, there's more for those of you who want to go above and beyond. Check out our Human Factors Engineer tier for just $5 a month. You'll receive all the benefits from our Human Factors Practitioner tier, plus access to the full library of Human Factors Minute, our weekly podcast featuring deep dives into Human Factors topics in just one minute. Are you ready for even more exclusive perks? Our Human Factors Scientist tier is just $10 a month and includes all the benefits of our engineer and practitioner tiers, as well as a one-time heuristic professional review of a personal product with personalized feedback tailored to your needs and goals. Plus, you'll receive an exclusive Human Factors cast-themed tote bag, so you can support the show anywhere you go. But if you really want to be a VIP, check out Human Factors Cast All Access tier for $20 a month. You'll receive all the benefits of our scientist, engineer, and practitioner tiers, plus a shout-out on our show every week and premium access to all of our learning resources through Human Factors Cast Academy. And for those of you who want the ultimate Human Factors Cast experience, become a Human Factors Cast VIP for $50 a month. You'll receive all the benefits of all uh, all access, scientist, engineer, and practitioner tiers, plus the opportunity to choose any topic you'd like and host a Human Factors Cast roundtable, your own roundtable discussion, but with podcast show with Nick Rome and Barry Kirby. But wait, there's more! If you're a company, organization, or consultant agency looking to reach thousands of human factors, psychology, and design professionals, become a show sponsor for $500 a month. You'll receive 60 seconds of valuable airtime on our show every week, a feature on our homepage, and a sponsor page with a permanent link, and so much more. 
So what are you waiting for? Join our Patreon and become part of the exclusive Humor Factors cast community today. Includes Discord benefits, of course. <laughs> it came from... It came from... What, what was that last little thing there? That was so weird. It's like, we don't write these. We, we just no. have fun with them. We have fun with them. Uh, let's switch gears, get to It Came From. This is where we look all over the internet to bring you topics that the community, the Human Factors UX community, is talking about. If you find any of these answers useful, wherever you're at, give us a like to help other people find this content. First one up tonight is by Lauren550 on the UX Research subreddit. They are saying they're struggling to find UX research opportunities for beginners. They write, I'm graduating soon and have a hard time finding entry-level job openings in UX research. Even with my internship experience, most jobs require more years of experience. Advice for finding UX research opportunities as a beginner? Any tips or suggestions would be helpful. Barry, what do you got? So I opened this out to the family tonight. And so we're going to get four for the price of one. How cool is that? So Amanda says, just keep trying. Obviously, uh, entry-level job positions are really, really hard to get um, in no matter what the field is, UX research or across the board. Build that portfolio and get volunteer work. You know, build what you've built your experience up from there. Holly says, try harder. Leo says, good luck. Um, But for me, really, I think, um, as I said, UX in in of itself is still a fairly new... Um, new field in many ways. Your your new UX research is a subset of that. So I think that is a spare, fairly specific role you're trying to look for. And so if you're struggling, don't be afraid of looking slightly broader. Um, so there is, you know, look into design work, look into other things that are either analogous to or linked to, just to broaden your experiences a bit. And um, you know, your first job might not be the, that golden UXR job, um, but you might want to find something that you can hop into with it. But I mean, fundamentally, there isn't necessarily that job out there with your name on it. There isn't the, the, they're not necessarily out there. So yeah, a bit of flexibility. Nick, what do you think? So this is actually the number one thing that my mentees struggle with is finding work. Uh, And this is a large problem. I could talk about the state of the job market right now as a whole and talk about why that is, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try to focus on some actionable feedback. Do something that'll help you stand out. Um, and I know the problem is necessarily (laughs) with finding opportunities, but apply for those mid tier roles, Mm -hmm. but do something that's going to make you stand out. I mean, don't, don't, don't limit yourself, but also be open to other things like internships, part-time gigs or volunteering with labs, uh, like our own to get experience. And, and I know it sucks to not have that pay. Believe me, I know that sucks. But if you're thinking about it in terms of like having actual experience on your resume, that is one thing that you can look at. There's a lot of good paid internships out there, so it doesn't all have to suck. Uh, You just got to suck it up and get through that at some point. So uh, that's kind of where I'm at. I know it's not ideal, but this, like I said, you're not alone in this. This is something that a lot of people struggle with because of the market right now. So that's where that's where we're at. Okay, this next one up here is by Klein Pretzel on the UX Research subreddit. What's the fastest you've quit a job and why? I've started a new job a week ago, but I'm considering quitting already. 
There's several reasons why, including an unsafe environment for women on my team, a lack of diversity in the company, poor communication between UX research and product management, and inadequate processes. Asking for advice, what's the shortest time you've worked in a job before quitting? Do these reasons seem valid for quitting my new job? Barry. I'm kind of intrigued as to the difference between the job advert they went for <laughs> and interviewed for and the job, because that must have been a good sales job in that interview um, to be presumably so different. Fundamentally, the first thing I'll hear is if you feel that you're in an unsafe environment, bail, get out of there. You have to look after number one. So if you really, you know, there's uh, there's unsafe environments and unsafe environments. If you truly feel it's an unsafe environment, get out. However, what I would say is, you know, if this is a larger company, there must be routes to complain. There must be routes to highlight the issue and, and do something about it. Um it depends whether you want to stay around or you just, you know, you've gone into something that is just not what you signed up for. Um, go. Um, I've had people who've, in fact, sort of worked on my team and they were looking to potentially, so they were um, recruited to, to, to take over from me. Um, and they were effectively sold the job um, without me in the room weirdly it was a slightly odd situation but when they then started learning about the job from me about what it is they were going to be doing they're like whoa this this isn't what um i envisaged this is what i thought it was going to be and i was like so what were you told and then we had then had the good discussion around well no this is what the job is um and they quit before before i before i could hand over um because they were like this isn't what we were sold so if you you know and personally the shortest time I've been in, it's not, not a job as such, but a, but a contract has been six months. And um, it, they wanted to extend it. And I said no, because of, and, of a number of reasons I wasn't in contact with where we were. So that's probably my shortest. But I think the reasons you've given are quite valid. But I think there's also a, a valuable life lesson there uh, moving forward. Nick, what do you think? Yeah, so this is why I wrote this in all caps in the notes. This is why you look for red flags during the hiring process and why those questions are so important. Um, because, like Barry said, this is <laughs> what is the difference between the person that in, uh, that interviewed you versus the people that you're working with now? Uh, and why is it the way it is? I think there's a few ways to approach this, right? So without additional context, the, the question I have is why is it an unsafe environment for women? Is this an individual that is causing issues? Is this a group-based safety risk? Or is this like a company culture-wide safety risk? If it's the company culture-wide safety risk, get out now. Uh, because that is, I, and whistleblow, get get out of there. Like, it's just not good. Get, take care of yourself. If it's a group-based thing, um, there may be changes that HR can implement that would make it uh, different for the future, but then that also becomes a really sticky situation because then you're still working with those people and short of a rehiring thing, then there's always going to be that weirdness because anyway, so, so, but then if it's the individual, there's obviously things that you can do um, by talking to HR and having them uh, take care of that issue. Um, depending on how far down they come with the, reprimands for that <laughs> in terms of process. Now there, I have a couple thoughts on the process because they mention here that there's sort of a, a 
poor communication between UX research and product um, and inadequate processes, this could be a huge opportunity for you to restructure this and be the hero they need. Like, I'm just saying, this could be a great source of experience here. Not saying get out, but uh, just to answer the question, about a year is what I've been looking at uh, in terms of my shortest. And it wasn't for any of these reasons. I've been fortunate enough to not have any work environments that have felt unsafe for me or others that I've worked with. Um, and that hasn't necessarily been, uh, I don't know. I haven't experienced the same issues here. Okay. The last one here, Barry, up tonight is by Beans JC on the UX Research subreddit. They write, UX researcher to AI. Hey there, I'm a UX researcher, and I'm curious about how I can transition to the AI field. What are some skills that would be important for me to learn in order to fit into an AI team? Thinking about quant analysis, machine learning, human-computer interaction, and coding, are there any other skills you'd recommend? Also, do you have any suggestions for courses or certifications I should look into? Thank you. Barry, what do you think? Um, I mean, the stuff that they they highlight, you know, if you want to get into AI, then, you know, coding and all that sort of stuff yeah great i think it's, it's all going to be helpful but i think with the way the ai is going and chat gpt is a really good example of this um so look at them wider general skills that you can learn to flex so obviously we we've talked in the past now about like prompt engineering um about how to engineer a prompt in the way to get you your get you what you want out of it now you can't you can't go and get say sort of a degree in that yet or anything like that because it only came about what three four months ago um as a thing and things are moving that fast um that if you've got it's not so much hard skills in terms of like learning how to code and things like that but being open and being flexible being adaptable picking up them skills about how to you know re, uh, recognize things that you should be writing down things and how you should like um or sorry um archive them how you should keep them so you can sit there and go right well actually um this prompt engineering thing as the example it is becoming a thing right i should be saving all of my prompts in order to maybe you know develop them offline and then put them in as 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 an example um so yeah just generally picking up those wider skills and being flexible and 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 open to new and innovative ways of working. I think it's really valuable in something like AI. It's not the only fruit at the moment, but there's lots of new things out there. But being open to doing new things is 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 a much skill that is underrated. There I we go. Yeah. okay, great. I think um look, here's the secret. You ready for the secret, Barry? Oh, okay. Go on then. I'll let, let me just get my pen. Okay. Right. Get the pen. It doesn't matter what domain you work in. The thing that's going to be the most important is keeping those core UX human factor skills and applying them to the AI domain for best results. I want to elaborate on this a little bit because, as you mentioned, Barry, AI is really young right now. It's in terms of being uh, pervasive. It's, it's still in its infancy. And almost all the products that we interact with will have AI or autonomy, autonomous systems built into it in the future. So in a way, we will all become AI researchers at some point to figure out how the human will interact with those automated, artificially intelligent systems within that product. Now, the industry as a whole is going to need to evolve to stay on top um, 
of the latest developments. I think the best thing you can do right now is just staying on top of what's happening. Stay on top of what's going on. Understand how those things impact end users. And that will give you an edge. So follow AI news sources and like there's some really cool stuff going on right now. So pay attention. Okay, Barry, it's it's uh it's time for your favorite part of the show. It's one more thing, uh, where we have just one more thing. I see baby in the in the in the notes. What is what is baby? Baby is is, is awards, baby. Yeah, there you go. We've got um an exciting day coming up tomorrow with my uh, with my team. We got we've gone into Cardiff uh, because we've been da- short selected, down down selected, shortlisted, whatever you want to call it, for um, family business of the year in Wales. So I'm very excited about that. It's going to be an afternoon. Now I get to take um, most of my team out with me, and we get to go to a bit of a glitzy afternoon afternoon bash, a um, couple of ha- couple of drinks maybe, and um, and see and see if we win something. Um, so that's going to be, uh, tomorrow's fun. So quite excited. That's what about I, you? One more thing. I, well, I just awkwardly realized that it almost sounded like I was calling you baby. So I just... <laughs> that's fun. Um, we, 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 we're getting quite hey, close baby. now. It's fine. What's, yeah. what's up, baby? All right. Let's... <laughs> All right. So I, I actually have uh, a, a pictures to show with my one more thing. And this is leftover from the pre-show. So ignore the spacesuit. But um, <laughs> I recently did uh, AI headshots uh, because everyone's doing these. These are fun. I, I posted these. So if you're listening only, go look at them in, in our Discord. Uh, they're posted in the random channel. But I do want to just show a couple of these while we're streaming here, because these are what I call the yikes. Y-A-I-K-E-S. Yikes. Uh, <laughs> like these um, these ones are pretty bad. So I'm just going to here uh, get out of the way here. And I showed some of these during the pre-show. But the thing with this one is the teeth. Uh, you know, that one's fun. And I guess the thing that surprised me the most about these was that some of them actually turned out pretty okay. And like, I got a new LinkedIn profile picture out of it. So there's, there's um, obviously some things that are going on behind the scenes that I was just impressed with some of the technology, but also like, how is this so variable in the the product that is coming back? Because mm. you get great shots and then you get shots like, like that first one I showed where it's just like the, the worst um, and look nothing like me. Or I guess there's like some resemblance, but like what's going on with these eyes and teeth? <laughs> I don't know. There's just still some uncanniness to it that I think needs to be figured out before. Um, I don't know. It was, it was cheap and fun. So if, if you want to figure it out and see the results that I had, uh, go go take a look in the Discord. Barry, I think you're going to do that, right? Yeah, oh, true, right I am. So, <laughs> you need to post your results, too. Uh, all right. Yes, I think we all need to. That that yeah. sounds like quite, quite good fun. I think so. Well, you know what? It's that time, everyone. That's it for today, everyone. If you liked our show and enjoyed some of the discussion about designing for humans, just generally, I'll encourage you to go listen to and be reminded of the fact that we have 8 billion humans to design for now. That's episode 256. That's a good listen. Comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week for more in-depth discussion. You can always join us on our Discord community. Uh, Visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a few ways that you can do that. One, this is free for you to do. Just go to your nearest review site. Uh, wherever you're listening, and just leave us a five-star review. That really helps the show, and that's free for you to do. Two, tell your friends about us. That word of mouth is the number one reason we grow. 
and three, if you have financial means to do so, just a dollar gets you into the door and gets you access to things like our pre-show and post-show. You can come on in here, hop on, hijack the show, tell us about your thoughts. There's plenty of other Patreon benefits, as we mentioned in that ad. Uh, as always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. Mr. Barry Kirby, thank you for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about how to write a bad user story? I'm all over bad user stories. So if you want to come and discuss that, find me on social media at Baz underscore K. If you want to come listen to some interviews with human factors professionals or people who are just generally really um, influential in the human factors world, then come and find me on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast at 1202podcast.com. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on our Discord and across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.